Lord God, we ask that in the hearing of uh, your word and in our responding to it, you would uh, prepare uh, hearts and minds for the way of the Lord, uh, for the salvation that uh, all mankind will see eventually and some others should see at our hand uh, in our own generation. Amen. Well, uh, we've already touched on uh, the uh, royal baby. Uh, This child who will be coming among us probably as monarch-to-be. We can't say king or queen, of course, uh, because that is uh, unknown to us, though uh, uh, who knows uh, how, how many people already know the answer to that question. Isaiah the prophet would not have understood the notion of Christmas, but he would certainly have understood the idea of a coming monarch. And at the heart of today is a bit of the Bible that's so good we read it twice. Would you please turn to uh, Luke, if uh, you've closed it, page 1029. Isaiah the prophet, who is 700 years before the time of Jesus. Uh, Isaiah is looking into the future, into the days when his people will face God's judgment for their sinfulness. They've oppressed one another. They've worshipped other gods. And they're going to be taken away to exile in Babylon, far away in the east. And they will be as low as it is possible to be. The God they've known as their God in their land will be far away, and they will have nothing to do but to consider their own sins that brought them there. And at their lowest point, says Isaiah, God will visit them to rescue them. A new voice will come out of the desert, far from the great city of Babylon, and from the desert comes the voice that brings salvation. The way for the Lord and his rescue will be prepared just like the great processional way of an eastern emperor. There will be no dips in that way. There will be no corners. Everything is going to be straightened out so that even from far away, all will be able to see the glory of his coming on the road. That is the physical image that lies behind what Isaiah has to say. But Isaiah intends so much more. The people are going to be in exile because of their sin. But God himself will visit them when things are at their lowest and deliver them. And in the light of that deliverance, they must prepare by turning away from sin. And that's going to be the true preparation of the way of the Lord. A repentant, renewed, pure-hearted, straight people will see what they long for, the deliverance of the king. Only it never quite worked out like that. Yes, they did come back. Yes, there was some renewal of the faith in Yahweh, their God. But it was all in dribs and drabs. There was no wholehearted turning. 
waves of invaders came through as again and again the people faced judgment. Until, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God comes to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. There has been no word from God for 400 years. This brings to an end the period of silence that you may remember if you were doing the walk through the Bible. And John says the message of Isaiah all over again. You are at your lowest point. Foreigners and idols are everywhere. And you think, people, that it's God's job to rescue you. Well, I have news. All this nightmare is God's continuing judgment. And the only way to see God's rescue, to see his salvation, is to prepare the way of the Lord by a wholehearted turning to his path and to signal it in this baptism of repentance that I'm telling you about. Now that, in those days, they did not do so. That in those days, they did not fully repent, apart from a few, is all too obvious when we consider what happened to Jesus. Had all the valleys been filled in, had all the paths been made straight, they would have welcomed him. But no. Abuse of one another continued, false religion flourished. Now it was not the rampant idolatry of Isaiah's day, but the obsessing over rules and laws that kept them from seeing the heart of God behind it all. Now notice how Luke sets it up. So many of these characters mentioned at the start of chapter 3 are figures that are going to be important actors in the drama that Luke is going to lay out for us in the two volumes of his book, Luke's, uh, his own gospel, and then the book of Acts. Caesar. Pilate, Herod, the high priests. The story of Jesus that we will have had in in chapter 2, we'll hear about more in a couple of weeks, that story has been pretty much out of public view. No one cares, frankly, what shepherds see. But now, Luke is concerned that we should know the precise history But he also wants us to know that this world, the world with which chapter 3 begins, this is Babylon. All these are the names of the forces which keep God's people prisoner. The names of the forces by which God has brought judgment on his people. And now the word of God comes again. And again it's in the desert far away from all these people. The desert was the place where God first formed his people and watched them stray and wander from his path. The tribes of Israel were created as they crossed the Jordan. 
So when John goes into all the country around the Jordan, as chapter 3 records it, there's an echo of that renewal going on. The people are being reformed around the Jordan. And John's message is the old message of Isaiah, applied to his generation with the force of a word from God who has been silent for 400 years. Go back 400 years uh, from now, 1612. What's gone on? Um, There's been an authorized translation of the Bible a little bit ago. Um, uh, uh, um, Elizabeth is dead and James has taken over. That's how far back we would have to go to get back to the word of God 400 years ago. The mighty king is coming. Prepare a way in your hearts and minds. Repent of your false ways and show a true, straight loyalty to him. And all mankind will see his rescue. Let's just do a little bit of uh, clarity. Verse 6. All mankind will see God's salvation, his rescue, his help. What's that going to look like? Well, according to the uh, passage from Isaiah as it unfolds, and you can see it there echoed at the end of chapter of verse 3. What is the salvation? It is the forgiveness of sins. And there's one more thing we need to do before we leave John in the desert. When they ask him later outside our passage today in verse 10 what they should do, what repenting looks like, he tells them two things. First, don't think that your spiritual heritage in Abraham itself protects you. It's about who you are, not about who your forefathers were. Secondly, be generous. Don't hoard, don't oppress, and be content. All those uh, bits on that second element are on the same theme. In the days of John, the rule of false religion ended up being about money. Well, we've considered the situation under Isaiah, and then the situation under John the Baptist, 700 years later, but we are now 2,000 years later. And we use this text in Advent, because the King is coming. Now, yes, we are coming up to Christmas, And the birth of that king in Bethlehem. And yes, it would in every way be a good thing to prepare for Christmas with a repentance that reaches into hearts and minds. But Advent is really the preparation for that other coming. When the king will return in might and glory and power and all mankind will see God's salvation. And the question, the, the consideration that's worth offering is this. How is all mankind, all humankind, going to see? Well, according to this, they will see because there are no dips or bends in the the road to conceal from sight what is going on. And how is it that there are no dips or bends in the road? Because those addressed in the desert and by John and by today are those who have prepared the way. As God's people, that's you and me, 
turn from false religion with wholehearted repentance, the world will see what salvation, what forgiveness of sins looks like and feels like. I want to introduce you to someone. You may or may not be aware of the uh, work of Mercy Ships. They're headquartered in Texas, but the ministry exists to support the uh, visits of a hospital ship, mostly around West Africa. They undertake all kinds of medical, mostly surgical interventions for populations that would otherwise never have that kind of access. Uh, Guido and uh, Serena Cola of our congregation met each other working uh, on a mercy ship, but they also met someone else uh, who's visiting. So let me introduce Tertius and ask you to come forward, if you would, please, Tertius. If you listen carefully to Tertius' accent, you will realize that he is neither German, like Guido, nor American, like Serena. Welcome. Where are you from, Tertius? From South Africa. Okay. And where did you, am I right, did you meet these two on the ship? Yes, I first met Guido on the ship in 2002, and then he met Serena on the ship two years later, I think, or a year later. Um, What were you doing on the ship? I started going uh, to the ship in 2000, Uh, just felt a call from God to get involved with the ship, and I've been involved with him the last 12 years. And what is it you do, what kind of work do you do with the ship? Um, I'm a plastic surgeon like Guido, so we do reconstructive surgery on the ship. Okay. Um, that's 12 years of your life. That's, a, that's a, a, a big deal. It's not the only thing I know, the only ministry you're involved in. Just say something about that. Yeah, it, it all started with my first visit to the Mercy Ships in 2000, and I've just felt a clear call to start working full-time for God. So... I was quite prepared to give up my practice, but it took about six years for God to prepare myself. And in the meantime, I got involved with two other organizations in Africa. The one is PECS, it's the Pan-African Academy for Christian Surgeons, where we, with a university in California, uh, train surgeons in Africa for Africa. And then Operation Smile, that repairs cleft lip and palates for children and adults in Africa. And then God also called me to a ministry in Amsterdam where I also spent about three months of the year. Okay. That was six years, I know, in which it wasn't just you that was being prepared because this, this, is a, this is a big travel implications and you're a man with a family. So tell us how that worked. Yeah, it was, I mean, we heard this morning that God does things different from what we expect he would do it. Uh, So he certainly did that in my life. Uh, When he called me, it was quite clear that he's calling me to do it without my family. He just called me away from my family. Uh, Obviously loving them and supporting them and be with them as much as I can, but my ministry is to travel alone and do it on my own. So that took about six years for us to understand that and to come to terms with it, of my wife to understand it, for her and my children to come closer and closer to God. And they did through all this, just came very close to him. And after six years, I felt released to go full-time then. And then I closed my practice in South Africa. So the last seven years, I've been doing this work now full-time. 
for the moment, thank you very much. I know that you've got some information. If people want to follow up in conversation during tea or coffee time with Tertius, uh, you're very welcome to do so. So thank you very much indeed. What I want us to register, apart from the story of that one life, is just how radical it all is. Think of all the sensible rules, the sensible life that it violates. Uh, family life. It's not only Tertius's absence, there's also the moral and physical dangers of working in the red light district in Amsterdam. Think about uh, the sensible issues of money that it violates. Because after all, in uh, uh, South Africa, he would have had a nice, comfortable life as a surgeon. Think of the issues of workload that it violates. I, I don't suppose there are many weeks in which Tertius works what we would call a European Working Time Directive Standard Week. Now, all of that can make quite an impact suddenly introduced among us. But imagine just how crazy Tertius's story looks to the outside world. When paths are straightened and mountains are brought low, all mankind gets to see God's salvation in ways that exactly as he said and we heard earlier, things are done differently because God's involved we hear the story of Isaiah, if we hear the story of John, what else can we say to each other this morning than repent? The words here in Isaiah matter. The word for what is crooked in verse 5 is the same as the word for corrupt later on in his gospel. The word for made low in verse 5 is the same as the word for humbled, when Mary, in her song, sings that the Lord has humbled the mighty from their thrones. See, it's all of a piece. It all overturns what's sensible. Repentance can so often be such a thin thing, a saying sorry for some minor rule-breaking. But those in John's day could could say sorry for some minor rule-breaking. And this repentance that he's asking for and that we have to ask for from ourselves is not so much about doing bad things but allowing good things to have such a strong place in our lives that they take over from God. There is a radical edge to this constant repentance, constant preparation of the way for the Lord. And it's a repentance that overturns the sensible way of doing things, that can even overturn the good way of doing things. All Tertius has done, after all, is leave behind a family in the way that those in military service do again and again and again. But he's done it voluntarily, and the world will think him mad for it. Mary understood when she sang that song that God overturns the way of the sensible. And repentance is called for from us because we can so often miss that radical edge. Think of what the Ten Commandments cover. Family, money and stuff, work, sex, all good things. But all those good things in a good, stable, nice 
lifestyle can get in the way. I heard from a a third party this week that someone from among our own congregation has spent a huge wadge of cash getting some unbelieving friends to a meal, quite an expensive meal, with a Christian speaker. He's got money, and he's using it radically. This repentance means a cool, deep look at the good things, not necessarily the bad things. In a sense, those are easy. But at the good things, and asking where God is asking you and me to be radical. Tertius has done it. Some of us have done it. It won't be for all of us as for him. Well, we're going out to deliver leaflets. Well, good. But imagine what impact we would have if every last one of us, adult and child, lived a life as radically prepared as Tertius has just talked about. More important, as radically repentant as Isaiah and John summon us to be. Who, among the all-mankind among whom we live, could then avoid seeing God's salvation and rescue? This passage tells us that more than any other thing, what the world needs is to know forgiveness of sins. Behind every door we will go to this morning, there is the need to know that forgiveness. Behind every face you will visit and see tomorrow, there is the need to know that forgiveness. That is salvation. And no one else's life can show it but yours and mine. Is salvation that deep straight, clear salvation, prepared in true and straight hearts that are willing to be radical and radically repent of all that gets in the way. Is that what our life looks like? Let's pray. Lord God, we acknowledge that the good can oftentimes get in the way of the best. In these days of Advent, bellow into our ears, we pray, with a voice that comes from you, so that we notice those good things we don't want to let go of, the things that we hold as in practice more important than the sheer wholehearted devotion that would live every day prepared in repentance. Amen.